You're welcome back to the big issue on 97.3 CTFM and on TV. Uh, this morning, um, the issues we are looking at uh, include the state of Ghana's judiciary. We have the JUSAG, which is the Judicial Service Staff Opposition of Ghana, on strike uh, since Wednesday. They've been on strike, and so justice delivery is ground to a halt in the courts, and that is a really, really serious matter. We are also looking at the new or the nominated chief justice. She appeared before the appointments committee uh, yesterday. Uh, justice uh, Tokonu, Getru Tokonu, um, appointed uh, to the Supreme Court or to the High Court in 2004, between 2004 and 2012, to the Court of Appeal between 2012 and 2019, and in the Supreme Court from 2019, uh, December. And in April 2023, there was a nomination as Chief Justice, and that is uh, what we're doing currently. We are going through the processes to get her properly appointed um, as Chief Justice. And yesterday, she made the appointments committee, and uh, she was vetted generally on, on quite a number of issues. And we're looking at some of them on judicial independence, the, the, the use of the contempt tool, Birth certificate, bribery, and corruption, etc. So that's where we are. So Justice Eniaboa uh, is retired officially. So he's no more CJ. He retired on the 24th of May, which is about three days ago. And he was he joined the, the, the High Court in 2002 and moved to the Court of Appeal in 2003. Stayed there till 2008. Went to the Supreme Court after that, and then. Uh, retired just this week, and he's been he's been CJ since January 7, 2020, till this week that he retired. Um, his legacy, the president says, his legacy has been stellar, a lot of infrastructure projects, etc. Of course, the minority also have their own views on him, uh, the NDC particularly, but that is the nature of of, of his legacy. We're, we're, that's what we're trying to look at today, and also in the second part of the show. We are looking at the IMF deal, what it means for the financial sector, and generally the, 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 the public, um, the squeezes we are to endure, etc. The show, as always, is interactive. You can join us via our WhatsApp line 020-444-7033. 020-444-7033. We'll be happy to share your views with the rest of the world. My name is Selom Adunu. So my, my, my guest, uh, Franklin Kujo, President Money Africa, Alexander Alban, private legal practitioner, former MP Gumwa West, uh, Koku Pencil, managing partner, uh, Pencil Law, private legal practitioner, Abdullah Yakubu, general secretary, JUSAG, and then Mahama Yarega, MP for Boku Central. Um, so, yes, um, let, let me come to you, Honorable Alban. Um, the, the number of things were also said. For example, the, this week or the week before, I think this week, the Supreme Court uh, issued a summons to uh, Pesa White, Dr. Pesa White. For some comments he made, the Supreme Court felt that the comments scandalized it. And so uh, he is to appear before the Supreme Court. People have thought that the Supreme Court is, 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 is too sensitive to criticisms, and that should not be employing or deploying the tool of contempt, you know, that way will stifle free speech and all of that. That question was put to Justice Tokon. He said the contempt tool has always been used, and it's been used to protect the dignity of the court from being scandalized. I don't know what you think. What do you think generally about that summons and the response given by the, the, the Chief Justice nominee? Thank you very much. Um, 
in any established, well-established democracy, one of the indices to see that there's proper democracy is free speech. Mm. And if you look at Article 162 of our Constitution, it grants that. And over the years, you realize that uh, the MPP government, for instance, tried to remove all these seditious libel and all those kind of things to make sure that people are able to express themselves freely. Mm. But in the same constitution, it says that um, free speech is not at large. There are certain restraints to make sure that the exercise of that free speech does not lead, degenerate into uh, chaotic situations. So there are limitations. Because you cannot just say anything just because there is free speech. I want to first underscore that. Mm -hmm. Nobody is saying that the courts, the judges, and most importantly, their decisions are sacrosanct. Mm. Otherwise, you will not have review of laws, review of judgments. When you go to the University of Ghana, you, you have University of Ghana Law Review or Law Journal. Uh, review of Ghana Law is also there, uh, which is published by uh, the Council for Law Reporting. Sometimes they take a decision of a court do a serious critique. At the end of it, when you read that critique, you realize that no, the judge must have been wrong. Those people are never called and condemned by the courts because they are not attacking the personality of the judges. They are not uh, attacking the court itself. They are attacking the decision, the reasoning. And so somebody can pick a decision, do a critique, and even say that this is an unsound judgment. Mm -hmm. He will not be in contempt. Mm. We must draw the lines very well. But what you have to know is that the three arms of government, the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary, the executive may have their own ways of making sure that people are compliant. Mm -hmm. The legislature has contempt of parliament. Mm -hmm. The judiciary also has contempt of courts. Mm -hmm. And this is an age-old um, tool in the hands of the court to ensure that its sanctity is preserved. And I can assure you that the bulwark of democracy are to uh, the, the, the legislature and the uh, judiciary. These are actually the two areas. When it comes to the legislature, because of partisan considerations, mm. sometimes you realize that the only way to make sure that democracy, the wheels of democracy run so smoothly, the bulwark that would ensure that there is balance in everything. It's actually the judiciary. Mm. And once confidence in the judiciary is lost, once 
people can just take it for granted, we are doomed. And so it has always been a tool in the hands of the judiciary to ensure that people comply with orders of the court. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to contempt, there are many, many things that go into it. Either the court has made an order and you refuse to obey, or the court has made, an, I mean, for instance, a, a restraining order and then you go against it, or an order compelling you to do something and you refuse to do it. Mm. Or, for instance, you insult a judge, you insult the courts, or you even prevent witnesses from even testifying. All these things come into what we call contempt. So long as the effect of that is likely uh, is to bring down the, uh, I mean, the image of the courts and to make the right thinking members of society feel that, oh, after all, the courts don't mean anything. So long as it has that effect, mm. it is content. But, uh, of course, that is well known. But that two people thing should be used sparingly. But when it appears that at the least provocation or the least thing that, that is used, doesn't it become Indeed, a difficulty? Indeed, they use it sparingly. I can assure you of that. Mm. There are many, many things that people do that may constitute contempt. But the courts do not every time call people, call people before them to answer questions. It is usually used in situations when they think that, look, enough is enough. It is getting too far. So where this matter has got to, we need to bring some sanity in the system. Mm. We need to um, at least let a person know that what he has done uh, is likely to reduce confidence in the judiciary. I mean, if we should reduce it to the, uh, Dr. Kessa White, he's now a professor, right? Mm -hmm. Professor, yeah, professor Kessa White uh, uh, comments. But, but have, you, have you seen the tweet that he, the specific tweet that... that I read he, it. Okay. And, and you think that was contemptuous of the court or that, that tweet merited the summons? It was extremely contemptuous. Mm. Because when, when you look at his, his timeline... And look at his learning. Mm. Look at his learning. Yes. He's a professor, mm -hmm. for Christ's sake. And uh, he's my very good friend. Mm -hmm. I, must, I, must under, I, yeah. I, I must state that here. Mm. You guys were contemporaries at investors. Yes, without, without destroying our friendship, mm. I must tell him in his face mm. that what he wrote, probably he was carried away by partisan considerations. Mm. But he, he said he was reading, uh, he, he was reading some, some documents, um, some, some, uh, some book. Of course, I've, I've looked at his timelines, and indeed, a lot of the comments on the courts were U.S.-related. So, for example, who else is following developments related to the U.S. Supreme Court? It is said how it is said how the court has shifted to the political right instead of staying in the middle. God save our democracies. Um, other ones, you know, he, he, there's, there's, a, there's a story from the Hill. Uh, the American public no longer believes the Supreme Court is impartial. He commented on that. Thanks to all who have, and he said, thanks to all who have called who have asked questions about my May 19, 2023 tweet. For the avoidance of that, I follow judicial decisions in many countries. So, and so the said tweet cannot be pinned to Ghana. It has more developments, to, it has more to do with developments elsewhere, including the US, we live in a global village, etc. So the point is that maybe he's been on a roll, you know, so he's been commenting generally on, on decisions elsewhere. 
fortunately or unfortunately, I mean, he's deleted that tweet though. So I'm unable to track exactly where, when he made that comment. Said it was not in relation to the Dechikwesen committee, the Dechikwesen court or, 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 or decision. Maybe it could have been coincidental. And so he needed to make that point. And he did. He also made that point in his apology and retraction that he was, he was reading some other things. And so it should not be pinned down to Ghana. What do you make of that? Okay. It is because probably of the hypocrisy that we uh, show in Ghana. Mm. In the U.S., it is always there, mm. right? Either the judge is a Republican mm. or he is a Democrat. Mm. We cannot run away from that. Yes. In Ghana, if you say you are MPP, problem give you. Mm -hmm. If you say you are NDC, problem. <laughs> yeah. because, so because of that, the judges are always yeah. trying to... Uh, I mean, to be in the middle. Me, but that's difficult. Mm. Uh, but in the US, it's open. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Donald Trump had the benefit of doing was this time round, uh, because of the vacancies that came, mm. he succeeded yeah. in getting Co conservatives, conservatives to the bench. And they stay there forever, so. Yes. Okay. And they actually turned yes. the balance mm -hmm. to the conservatives. Yeah, yeah. And the first blow they, 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 they had was to go at uh, Roe versus Wade, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's, this has been a very long-standing decision for about 30 years. Yes. But they came to change it mm -hmm. based on their philosophy as pro-life people, as conservatives, mm. right? So on what basis would anybody say? Because you, you, you cannot uh, say that judges are also not influenced by their own ideologies. Mm. I, I see. So, so yes, so, so I, I, I think, when, so when you take a trip down his, his timeline, you, you see that as far back as August 2022, you know, he, he made other comments on the Supreme Court because, I mean, he said he was reading a book, David Kaplan, the most dangerous branch inside the Supreme Court's assault on the Constitution. All of that. So I think all of that must be taken into context. And I'm sure the Supreme Court will do all of that. Let me go to Mahama Yariga. Uh, Mahama Yariga, welcome to the program. Um, you, were, you were at the appointments committee yesterday when Justice Tokonu appeared before you. Um, in, in a few seconds, what will, will be your general assessment of her performance before the committee yesterday? Thank you very much. I think she she did a very uh, brilliant uh, job before the, the committee. I think she was impressive. There's no doubt about that. And uh, looking at her CV, I think she has that diversity of experience that you need for an administrator of the judiciary, somebody who uh, will oversee the judiciary. If you look at the CV, you see that she's had some uh, management training. She's had training in the area of IT. In fact, she's been overseeing the e-justice uh, program. She understands the technological issues that uh, provide the infrastructure base for virtual uh, infrastructure. for e-justice uh, uh, program. 
and all that. So, so for me, I think that, you know, and, and in terms of uh, experience, she's risen from appeal to um, uh, the uh, Supreme Court, and she's been on the bench for a while. So there's really nothing lacking in terms of the potential to be a good uh, Chief Justice. And so I don't think that there's any doubt or any question about uh, administratively uh, capacity to, to, to function as a Chief Justice. Mm. Very well. So, so what will you say uh, to some of the, the views she expressed in terms of judicial independence, where she says that the unanimous decisions that we have seen in the past or we continue to see simply means that you know, the law is on, that, on the side of that matter. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they are towing the line of their appointor you know, for, for that matter. She also talked about bribery and, and corruption. And, and as you just heard your colleague, uh, 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 Aban, Alexander Aban, we're dealing with the matter of uh, the, the use of the tool of contempt. Putting all of these views she expressed together, you know, did you have anything contrary or do you think differently? What do you make of those views? I really don't think differently. I think that as a lawyer, if I have an issue with a unanimous decision, I go to the ruling and then the reasoning given in the ruling. If I cannot attack the reasoning, then I really have no basis for being concerned about the fact that the decision was uh, unanimous. So for me, I think that professionally and intellectually, uh, and, and then the quality of argument that inform the reasoning is for me the most important uh, consideration. And so I prefer that when people have issues with a Supreme Court ruling, they present a reasoned critique of, of that ruling and, and not just uh, engage in uh, what I would consider as just, you know, political talk, even though people are free to also express themselves. And indeed, it is the reason why I have consistently said that it doesn't do the image of the court any good if they hand in decisions without providing the reasoning. Because I have consistently said that, you know, at least I have some little learning in the area of constitutional law and some little learning in comparative uh, constitutional law. And, you know, if you understand the history of uh, constitutional courts as political entities, you will also understand that their authority is largely founded in the quality of their reasoning and how they are able to mobilize the prevailing political forces in the country to back them. Because sometimes their actual adversary is the government itself. You know, you will think that at all times, the adversary of the Supreme Court will be uh, political opponents of the existing government. But there could be times when the actual adversary of the Supreme Court will be the government itself and the, the potential of their decisions being enforced by the government will be affected by the fact that the government is the one on the losing side of the case. And yet that decision has to be enforced. 
And so at that point, it is the moral force behind the decision, the quality of the reasoning that will galvanize the population to stand behind the court against their government so that the court will prevail as the constitutional independent arbiter of disputed and contested understandings of how uh, a country should be run. And so given the reasons and the quality of the reasons is at the very foundation of the legitimacy of Mm. you know, contestation and there's deep division and cleavage, it will be good when you are taking the decision to also give the reasons then. Otherwise, you give a gap and that gap tends to be filled by political attacks on the court. Even later on, when you give your reasons, you would have lost the momentum because people may not go back to pay attention to the actual reasons that informed your decision because they've already bought into the political propaganda that followed your decision, and you don't have an opportunity to correct it and reposition the court in terms of its image and relationship with the public. Very and well. Also because, yeah, so, so because honorable, so I, I, I see you have almost segued into the, I mean, so that, that's been your principle and your view generally on exactly. the reasons you know, yeah. going with the, the decision or the conclusions. So, so, let, so, so yeah. let's get into that. The, the minority yeah. has taken a position. Indeed, you issued a statement. For, I mean, your chief whip issued a statement to, 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 to confirm that. And you said that you said that on the, on the floor of the committee. And your leader also said that before the whole thing started, the whole betting exercise started. But will it be fair to uh, defer the approval from your side of the nominee, Chief Justice Tokonu, I mean, Chief Justice nominee Tokonu, based on a seven-member panel decision. She was just a member of that panel. I, I mean, never mind it was a unanimous decision. Will it be fair to, to withhold her approval, at least from your side, based on a collective decision? I mean, when she has hundreds of other judgments you could use to, 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 uh, to assess her, yeah, I mean, it will be fair to do a very good job of evaluating her. And given that we have the authority to decide basically what considerations will inform our evaluation. You know, aspects of her work. I've just told you that we were very impressed with her CV and her background and her training and her preparedness for the work. But then also we're looking at the way that the judiciary has been managed uh, in contentious political matters. And we wanted to make that point. And the question case was just a typical example of how uh, the management of a case uh, is creating a political situation. And we said, look, this is just an example and you were part of it. But apart from that, we're also interested in your philosophy and, you know, the kind of arguments that you would give to justify the decision that you took to take one of us out of parliament. We want to see the quality of the reasoning so that it will enable us to move forward. And so we're not deferring her approval because she was not going to be approved yesterday. Mm. 
she wasn't going to be approved yesterday. Yesterday was just a process, a stage in the process of her approval. The approval will ultimately come from Parliament when it resumes at plenary. We haven't gotten there yet. So we said, okay, as part of the process, there are timelines, and luckily, Parliament is not yet sitting. We resume on the 6th. Luckily, the Supreme Court says they will take a decision on the 7th. So let, we would prefer to wait till the 7th after we've had the ruling. We might want to ask you a few more questions about the ruling as part of our evaluation exercise. It doesn't mean we'll vote against you, but we still want to satisfy ourselves. And then our friends said, no, you have to take a decision today. We said, no, we're not ready to take a decision today. In any case, the approval process, parliament is not certain. So why are you in a hurry? And they said, no, so okay. If you want to go alone, go ahead and go alone. We are not ready to take a decision. So do whatever you want. And then they sort of, then we are going to interpret it to mean that you voted again. So we haven't said we have voted or we have voted again. We are saying that we are waiting till the 7th. And when we hear the reasoning and we want to ask a few more questions, we will ask for an opportunity to answer those questions. And then we will tell you what our position is on the matter before a report is written and presented to Parliament, whether she will be a consensus candidate or, you know, we will we'll have reservations and therefore will put her to a vote. So I thought that it was a matter that our colleagues on the other side will view it more as, you know, the kind of adjustments that we need to make for each other to make each other comfortable about taking certain uh, decisions. But it, it was like, you know, we are the majority and so we must decide. I would say, look, you will, you will unnecessarily punish her because you will rush and then take it through a process that would involve she being voted on and that won't be our fault it will be your fault because we're only asking for seven more days so, I mean, the seventh to take a decision so that was it now whether or not there is justification for assessing her based on a decision of a panel of which she is a member i find it a very very lame you know argument to say that because she's a member of a panel that takes a unanimous decision, she has no ownership of that decision. Come on. Any lawyer who understands constitutional law and the functioning of the Supreme Court will tell you that when there is a unanimous decision, it means that every member of the panel agrees with the decision and takes ownership of that decision and will live to defend that decision. If you have a contrary view, even though you may, you may conclude with the rest, but you have a different reason for arriving at that conclusion, you have a right to say, yes, I agree with the decision, but I will arrive at it based on different reasons. And you are permitted to state your different reasoning for arriving at that decision. So if you don't state different reasoning for arriving at the decision, it means that you accept that reason. And once you accept that reason, you are equally accountable for the quality of the reasoning. So you can't tell me that because she is a member of a panel of seven, therefore she is not responsible or accountable for the reasoning that she uses to arrive at that conclusion, is a manifestation of a very, you know, uh, weak understanding of constitutional law and how the Supreme Court functions and how individual uh, members of any panel should be held accountable for uh, uh, the reasons that are given for decisions in the court. So yes, she is accountable for whatever reasons they gave, unless she either dissented or she agreed but gave different reasons for which it is the reasons that she gives individually 
which should be used to assess it. Otherwise, the reasons that are given by whoever wrote the judgment, whether it is her or a different judge, she is accountable for the content and the quality of that reasoning. Very well. So, I mean, well, well articulated. The, now, the, the chairman of your committee, Jose Uzu, has said there will be no opportunity for a second vetting of a sort. That is, if you look at the reasons and you think there are issues to be clarified, there will be no such opportunity because he gave everybody the opportunity yesterday. So as it stands now, they, from what we know, have gone ahead to, uh, uh, to give their approval. And so they are writing a report, or the committee is doing a report, which would suggest that she's been approved by a majority, which then means that she will have to go through the process. Um, what does that mean? Would the majority, minority meet and say, okay, based on the answers she gave and, and her delivery at the committee level, we are satisfied, notwithstanding uh, the fact that we do not have the reasons for the justification judgment. So even though we wanted to wait for uh, June 7, we also give our approval. What, what will happen? I mean, has, has that discussion been held yet? What, what, what will happen from here? You watched the proceedings live. You heard me when it got to my turn. When I said my understanding is that there is an understanding with the chairman of the committee that after the ruling, we'll be given an opportunity to question her on the ruling. And I said my questions will relate to the ruling. Otherwise, I don't have any other issues with her nomination. If you watch the proceedings, the chairman did not, at that point, respond to me that, no, you either ask your question now or you never have an opportunity. He appeared to have acquiesced and said, okay. I said I had no questions until after the ruling. Presumably, he agreed with an earlier understanding that he had with our leadership. Our leadership reiterated that point throughout the proceedings. He did not state categorically that he disagreed. And therefore, if we did not ask our question, he will not give an opportunity for second chance. He did not at any point. I don't recall. And you have the records of the proceedings. So it now becomes a question of his integrity as a leader. If he says, that, oh, after the proceedings, I'm satisfied with whatever she has said, so I'm not giving you an opportunity. And the rules, don't, there's no, nothing in the rules that say that we were compelled to conclude our deliberations yesterday. The rule says that when the committee concludes its deliberations, so it's up to the committee to decide that it has concluded its deliberations and therefore it is writing a report. We could have concluded yesterday that we haven't concluded our deliberations because some members of our panel want another opportunity to question the accused, I'm sorry, the, the, the nominee and the nominee uh, yeah, right, will be recalled again for that. It's entirely up to us. It is arbitrary and just, you know, a show of power to approach it and interpret the rules the way that he did, but everybody and their limitations. So I, I cannot question his understanding of the rules and etc. and how he chooses to understand them. But as my, you can read the rules, they are clear that when the committee concludes, the committee can say we haven't concluded. So you can't say there's no room for further deliberation. Now, secondly, it's up to him for for, for, for he being on the majority side and he being a member of the party that nominated the, 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 the nominee for the post of the Supreme Court, that is the NPP, his job 
is to make it smooth and easy for her. If he has to make adjustments to achieve that objective, it's an indication of his leadership quality. If he thinks he's going to be rough in his approach and in the end take her through a, a rigorous voting process, it's up to him. We yesterday said we haven't taken a decision on her yet. We haven't told you we are voting for her or we are voting against her. We just want to hear her reasons for deciding that our colleague, Honorable Quayson, should be taken out of parliament. Her reasons may be well-founded. And if the reasons are well-founded, we'll be among the first to say, oh, okay, we did not advert our mind to this provision of the law and that provision of the law, or we read this provision of the law this other way and she read this provision the other way, and we think that her reasoning are superior to our reasoning, and therefore we are preparing ourselves, we are going for a by-election, we are not going to file for a review, we will go and fight the case, uh, sorry, the political case on the ground in the constituency and come back, let's go ahead, let's approve her as a, a Supreme Court nominee without having to vote and etc. So, so we may come with a position either way. All you needed to do was to say, okay, well, in any case, Parliament will not be able to take a decision on her before the six because we are not sitting before. I see. Um, so she also said a few things. I mean, this is the last question. So why they had it. Let's wait. Mm. Okay. Yes. So, mm. so, so basically, that was it. Mm. To be Very frank well. with you. Very well. See, the, she also dealt with the matter of the tool of contempt. Uh, one of your colleagues, Professor White, uh, has been summoned before the Supreme Court. And so I'm sure that, you know, uh, triggered a lot of the questions on contempt that she dealt with. Uh, so what do you think of what she said about the use of the tool of contempt? And did you see uh, what your colleague, um, Pesa White, tweeted, for which reason the Supreme Court is summoned him to appear before them? How do you just oppose that comment tweeted and the defense or justification given to the Supreme Court's use of the tool of contempt in summoning your colleague before, be, be, before it? Well, I mean, in all sincerity, I have not seen the tweet. I don't know the content of his uh, message. I was actually not in the country. I came the day before yesterday just to participate in this uh, vetting process. And I was so busy, I wasn't following what Professor White was doing. But I am one of those who, as a lawyer by training, believe that uh, the Supreme Court should be protected. Uh, protected because the Supreme Court itself doesn't have a police force behind it, doesn't have a military behind it. It, it survives on its reputation. So as much as I'm one of those that insists that the Supreme Court must be held accountable, and for me, its accountability is to the, the quality of its reasoning and its decisions. Uh, the Ideally, uh, decisions. I know that in this era of uh, social media and information communication technology, uh, people are robust in expressing their views. And sometimes people express their views without really being well informed. And sometimes people have an understanding of freedom of expression within a democratic framework in ways that may not really be appropriate. And so you cannot, you know, frown on the, the right and the power 
of the Supreme Court, and not just the Supreme Court, but any other court, high court, you know, um, circuit court, whichever court, at whatever level, their right to, to guard their image. Of course, we need to balance that with the freedom of individuals to express themselves and to seek to hold the court accountable Very well. in terms of the quality of their work. So well. I, 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 I cannot comment specifically on Professor White because I have not uh, read it. Mm. But then also, I am one of those that will admit that no matter what you say, uh, given the way that sometimes people you know, express their views about courts without really understanding the, the workings of courts and the workings of the administration of justice, and they don't even understand the rules of procedure, and then they don't understand the law itself, sometimes they can be so uh, ignorant. I, if you ask my colleagues in parliament, sometimes they will say something about a Supreme Court decision, and I tell them, with all due respect, I actually agree with the Supreme Court on this matter, because I've read it, and I understand the reasoning, and the rigor involved in coming to that conclusion is well appreciated by me. Very well. So I, I beg your pardon. So, so many people criticize without really understanding. I see. Thank you so much, um, the Honorable Mama Yariga. I, I know you're on the road. And of course, we know you, you, thanks so much for taking time off to, to speak to us on these matters. Uh, Mama Yariga, Member of Parliament for Boku Central, and he's key in this because yesterday he, he premised his comment on the, the, the unavailability of the Jechikwesin reasons, and so we had to take some time to deal with it. Thank you so much, Mahama Yariga. Yes, Honorable Laban, you, you were on the floor. So now we segue into this um, on the Kwesa White matter, I and mean, we've heard views, I'll yes. come to him. But on the matter of the minority, the, the, he, the, he seems to, to explain his point that she, she was part of a collective decision, and so she must own that decision. They wanted to test her view, really, on the decision they took to take one of their own from parliament. They needed to understand that. And so they're saying that they should defer the vetting or even the, the, the approval of the nominee to when the, uh, the reasons were available should, should not be taken out of place. I, I'm not the host, mm. but I wish I was the host. Mm. I would have asked him, mm. in his own view as a lawyer, uh, did Judge Kwesi qualify at the time that he filed his nomination mm. so that he would have even taken his own view mm. to see. So are they doing this as a matter of law or they are doing this as a matter of political consideration? Mm. That's what you must start looking at. Because if it crosses the line from being a matter of law mm. by that it is just a matter of political consideration, mm. that is where we we'll say that of the many cases that uh, the chief justice nominee has dealt with, they are only interested in this because of its political coloration. Mm. Otherwise, I don't think that that decision alone could be a reason to assess her quality or otherwise. Mm. Because this is a lady who, from 2004, has been on the bench from the high court up to this point where she's in the Supreme Court. Many judgments have come out of her pen. Mm. And to assess her quality, you could use all these. Why the only, why the political uh, question? But I that's mean, where their interest the, is there. That that's what I'm interest. saying that, is it because of political coloration or it is because of her standing 
and her quality as a judge. Mm. Because if it's her standing and quality as a judge, there is evidence, enough evidence, for them to come to a conclusion on well. their own assessment well. Well. as to whether she's good enough or not, mm. without necessarily looking at the judge question uh, decision mm. before. Well. And that's why I'm thinking that we must not draw too much partisan or political partisan uh, considerations into this. Mm. Because, um, I mean, there's a, there's a joke passed mm. by a well-known NDC lawyer that I, I know. I don't want to mention his name. He mm. said, oh, as at now, there's only one judge standing mm. in the Supreme Court. And that judge is who? are all politicians. And the judge, that one is who? And that judge... Uh, is for mine. Why the so? rest are all politicians. Why Most so? probably because, apart from him, all the rest were appointed by the president. <laughs> but of course, Kufado. okay, Kufado. Okay. I, I see. That's interesting. So, 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 and if you view that as against the comment, uh, the unfortunate comment by uh, Dr. Pesa White, mm. there seemed to be some kind of perception. Mm. Okay, on the other side of the political divide, that so long as uh, and. Maybe I can go back a little mm. more, even to see the point made by Justice Atuguba. Mm. No, 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 Mr. Uh, uh, Professor Atuguba, mm. on the research that he purportedly conducted. That about the appointment, uh, the appointment appoint and the direction of the exactly. But when we do that, we weaken the confidence that people must have in the judiciary. Life is a fact. Why don't we state it? I mean, that's research. It's shown that the judgments. The, the direction is 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 same as the appointor. So if you appoint me and a political matter comes up, I rule in in a way that favors you. If that's if that's the result of the of the research, that's factual, isn't it? No, but if it is based on political philosophy, for instance, mm. like I said in the U.S., that you obviously know where the direction mm -hmm. of a conservative bench is likely to be, mm. and you are also able to predict where the direction of a liberal uh, yes. bench mm. would be. If it had not been issues of uh, hypocrisy and all that, some of these things must not come to us even mm. as a surprise. Yeah. Right? But the question is, how many political cases are actually done in the Supreme Court? Mm. Very, very few. In fact, infinitesimal com com point compared, compared to, what, to what they do. The number of cases, cases that go through your court every between day. individuals mm. that come before them. Yeah. The only thing is that, and she said it right, because political cases usually are heralded by noise and uh, news items and all that, it, it, it attracts the attention of the public. Mm. But you look at the, I mean, the, the, for instance, if I should use the Supreme Court of Ghana law report as a basis, mm. you see that there are many, White, many cases. But Professor White has said that his tweet has nothing to do with Ghana's Supreme Court. That's what he has said. Regardless of mm. which Supreme Court mm. he's talking about, you don't... But, okay. yes, but no, he no, said no. the apology is about... He, no, said he could have done better. That's yes. what I'm saying, that regardless of which Supreme Court he mm. was talking about, even, even if he said that it's about the U.S. Supreme mm. Court, it's wrong. I see. Very well. Let, let me go to Koku uh, uh, Pinto. Um, so, the decision <laughs> of the minority, <laughs> deal with the decision of the minority, and we want to speak on the contempt as well. Yeah, you know, I've got very strong views on issue of contempt. Mm -hmm. Because first and foremost, you see, if you look at the fragility... Mm -hmm of the country and our institutions, you appreciate that freedom of speech must be so well balanced mm. that people just don't say anything. 
I want to give you the example of what happened in the U.S. over the last two years. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the Trump sedition and everything that went with it. You notice that at the end of the day, we have the situation we have because the institutions are so strong. They've been built over so many years that the individuals who hold his own attorney general and so forth and so on, they all brought their influence to bear on the situation in such a way. Because you notice that Trump is of a different character. I don't know where he came from, but like he would have his way in virtually everything. He could not have his way because of the strong thing. We don't have them in Ghana. And therefore, when you begin to call names, stupid Supreme Court, it cannot be. Every country must have a lexicon. Yeah, but Le it's not, you said it's not in relation to Ghana's Supreme Court. Please, I'll come to that. Mm. He says, mm. why apologize for what you have not done? He said he could have done better. It, it takes not so. Please, you see, let me tell you, this is a hype. Mm. He claims that it's not about... If I really have not insulted you, I will not apologize for any reason. But let me tell you something that's happening in this country. I'm just using this as a reference point for other contempt matters that arose that were Supreme Court. You see, what it shows is that we lack conviction as a people. In other words, people have views. You may possibly believe that the Supreme Court is stupid, but you may say it and defend it. Mm. It's as simple as that. Only last year, I was reading on, uh, on a distant, I think a similar uh, situation occurred, and I, I did a Google search. In India, a senior practitioner had called their Supreme Court by names. Mm. They brought him before the Supreme Court, they rendered a decision, and gave him an opportunity to apologize, or you face the You know what? He told, them, he told them that to be a contempt of his conscience, to apologize. So he defended the position. That is so, that's the real man. So what happened Said, to him? Of course, he faced the consequences. Mm. That's what real men do. Mm. You know, I mean, say things that you believe. Come on, if you believe the Supreme Court is stupid, why don't you go and explain it to their face? Show them reasons why you think they are stupid. And face the consequences. That's what we call consensual objectives. People have a conscience. They tell you, look you in the face and tell you, that, yes, I know the law. I know this is the creed. But nonetheless, I would defy this creed for reason A, B, C. Everybody who defies the Supreme Court, he goes there and then he begins to render all forms of You are no man. Very well. Very well. So, so um, Abdullah, now let, let's, let's get into the, the, the meat. Now, um, JUSAG is on strike and uh, we've been trying to plead with you guys to go back to, to work so that we can also work and people will get justice and all of that. Uh, kindly take us through what your concerns really are. You know, for people who do not understand why you are on strike, why really are you on strike? Thanks, man. Uh, the issues that brought about the strike by JUSAC borders on approval and implementation of review of salaries and related allowances mm. to take effect from January 2023 to December 2024. Per our arrangement, the salaries are reviewed after every two years, unlike other public sector who have annual review, we have annual review. So when it's time for us to review the salaries, traditionally USAC will send a proposal to our <coughs> management. Mm. And the constitutional arrangement is that the President of the Republic of Ghana will determine the salary based on the advice of the Judicial Council. 
in one instance and in another instance in consultation with the Public Services Commission. So when we submit our proposal to the Judicial Council, they often will set up a committee to look at it so that a report will come out as the Council's advice to be submitted to the President for that determination to be made. Mm. So way back in uh, October last year, we submitted the proposal for the Council to consider in their advice to the President. It took a bit of time and the council finally finished its work and they submitted to the presidency for his determination in accordance with the constitution. It took a bit of time for the determination to be made or we'll see the approval to be given. But what really also brought about the strike was the peculiar nature of the issues we're dealing with. Because government of Ghana introduced the cost of living allowance for public sector workers, mm -hmm. largely because of the fall in real incomes occasioned by unfavorable economic conditions in mm -hmm. July last year, and staff of the judicial service were part of it and did enjoy the cola up till December 2022. In December 2022, the council had not completed its report to be given to the president. So we could not have been uh, you know, asking that we should be given the review, we should be given an, an approval. But in January, we realized that we were running out of time. So we had to plead with government through the council that the cost of living allowance is still relevant. Hmm. We knew it was supposed to end in December, but because we have not completed our review, the COLA should be maintained in the interim. Hmm so that the council and government will continue to work on the review. As and when the review of the substantive salaries are completed, the COLA will be taken off and the new salaries will take effect the necessary uh, areas. Unfortunately, that was not granted us. Then we came with another proposal that, okay, we are in January. Since you could not maintain the COLA for us, then quicken work on the substantive salaries so that we can have it enjoyed. And normally when people, when you are dealing with workers, equity is very important and people will normally compare naturally and that has an, a psychological effect. When you increase other public sector workers' salary by 30% and withdraw the cola for them, you take away our cola also without giving us an increase. We go to the same market, buy tomatoes, pay for trotro at the same price with the other public sector workers. Once they have their increase and we don't have that increase, and the process was, like my law said yesterday, slow. Mm. From January, we're hoping that oh, by February, I think things could have quickened because there are times that government will prioritize issues and make sure that they sit almost every day to see to it that issues are resolved for staff to get what is due them, especially in other public sector. I recall that in the other, those who are on the uh, single spine salary, when January was getting to an end, government had to sit with them almost every day and made sure that by 13th January, they concluded everything, submitted it to controller, and they had the salary in the month of January without any delay. Yeah, but when did you submit your proposal to the president, to the office of the president? No, we don't submit to the president. You submit it to the... To the council. To the and council. when the, the council... council points it to the president. To the president, yes. But when do, when, when do you know that the presidency got hold of that document or that proposal? When we made the Labour Commission, the official information given to the Commission by our management is that it was submitted on the 20th of April. To the, to, to the, to the President? To the President, by yes. The council. However, the Judicial Council completed its work on it on 29th March. Okay. Yes. 
Okay. But between 20, between 20th April and now, that's about one month. That's more than one month. Uh, that one, one month, nine days, right? Okay. Given all that the presidency goes through, etc., won't it be too harsh to expect a decision on that in just the one-month period? It would have been okay if mm. the government was minded to maintain the COLA. Because the economic situation that brought about the introduction of the cola are still prevalent. Mind you, at the time that the cola was introduced, inflation was around 10, getting to 20s and thereabouts. Mm. At the time that it got to the presidency and the cola was withdrawn, we were now jumping to 54, coming down to 51, 45, and around 30, something like that. So given the situation that we found ourselves, it would have been okay that to give government even two months to do it, mm. if they had maintained the cola for us in the interim so that we know that things are hard, but there is something that we are relying on, then government could be given the space to work on the new salaries for us. Mm. Unfortunately, we did not get that. I see. So as it stands now, what is the next move? I mean, uh, the judicial secretary sends a press statement to say that you guys have a meeting on Wednesday. Yes. Uh, before that meeting, are there other meetings with government or other people, you know, uh, expected to, I mean, suppose who, who will be, who, who are required to deal with you to bring to a, a proper resolution of your matter? Okay, the, if there will be a meeting, the government will meet us with our management. Mm. The meeting with our management on Monday, perhaps, will be a preparatory step. So you have a meeting on Monday? Yes, please, mm. with uh, management. Okay. And that could be a preparatory step towards another meeting on Wednesday with the government side, possibly Minister of Finance. Mm. And, maybe anybody given a fiat by the office of the president. So what are you guys looking for? Do you want the money to hit your account or you just want an assurance that the money will be paid you? I'll be frank with you, we've had assurances. Mm. And it's very common to be given assurance that may not come, mm. uh, that may not uh, materialize. Mm. So the ultimate goal for JUSAC is to get the new salaries approved mm. and then paid to us with the necessary areas from January up to the month of approval. Before you go back to work? That is the ultimate we are looking for. But uh, then, then it means we are not going back to work now. I mean, and we've not even had, or you've not heard from government whether your proposal is been approved or government wanted to relook at the proposal. Yes. We've, we've not heard that. Yes, and what yes. proposal have you taken to government or the council for, for onward delivery to the president? What's Which, the proposal? What, what's the increment you're looking for? What the proposal we sent to the council was for 55%. 55%. Because we have two, after two years, mm -hmm. we have to go yes. for review after two years. So mm -hmm. it was 55%. But as to what the council submitted to the president and what the final outcome will be, we wait when we engage them, we can look at those integrities. Okay, so all of that hasn't been done. And now you are saying that, you know, you have to be paid practically yes. before you go back to work. That, that appears to be... That's what I said. That is the ultimate, ultimate goal that we are looking at. So it means you are amenable, or to, you are pliable to, to, to discussions and for that position to be massaged. Sure. In fact, the strike is not what we want. It is mm. the money, the approval, and the payments <laughs> that we want. If that has to be done, there has to be an engagement. Mm. If we have the engagement and what is put on the table is convincing enough and assuring enough, then we can consider uh, taking a second look at the position that we, are, we have taken. So as we speak now, we are not calling on the strike on Monday. Monday, we are not working on Monday. We are, we are not, for staff are not coming to work on Monday. On Monday. So nothing can happen between now and tomorrow for you to call up the strike so we work on Monday. Anything can happen. We are open. If they call us to come for a meeting on Sunday, we are available to mm. uh, engage with whoever is going to give us a necessary approval. Mm. But what the meeting we know of is the one coming on Monday. And you won't call up the strike 
until after, maybe and before the meeting. You will not do that before the before meeting. Before the meeting, no. It will the calling of the strike will depend on what is put before us when we go for the meeting. Mm. If you don't know what is going to be put before you and then you decide to call off the, uh, the strike, then you are not doing yourself any I see. good. Uh, 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 Pinto, you, you have dealt with the, the, the JUSA guys in, many, in, in one of your seminal cases. Yes. Um, what do you make of this position? Of course, for two years, their salaries haven't been reviewed. The cola they were taking last year has been taken up. Yeah. They are back to zero, more or less. The economic situation is very harsh. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> the economic situation is, is very harsh. Yes. And they are still buying from the same markets. Their colleagues in other public sector organizations have had increments to the tune of about 30%. Yeah. You know. uh, is there a justification for the strike? Notwithstanding the fact that you are a practitioner, so it means you will not be working over that period. But is there a justification for their strike, given all the reasons are used? First, I'm quite sympathetic to their case, but that's a different matter. Mm. Strike is an issue of law. In other words, one of the rights that's granted by our Labor Act, mm. uh, a worker is entitled to strike, but subject to considerations that regulations of the Labor Commission. Labor Commission has the authority to call any striking workers to order. Mm. And they normally exercise it by issuing some form of order directed to them. Mm. I wouldn't know on the particular facts of this case what kind of engagement has taken place between the Labor Commission and the JUSAC as an association. Mm. But I would take the view that if the Labor Commission takes a decision requiring that they should return to work mm. and they fail to do so, it will have consequences for them in law. In other words, every time that our workers come together as a union, they look at a collective entity and they can be very defiant, mm -hmm. even in the light of orders and decrees and so forth and mm. so on. I do not know why in this particular case, the Labor Commission, because typically they go to the court and get an order, mm -hmm. a kind of injunction, which is mandatory. Maybe they didn't, they didn't anticipate it early, and now they can't go to the court to do that because the courts are not working. The very people who facilitate that are on strike, so the courts are not working. So it puts the Labor Commission in a very difficult position. I think they are very clever, <laughs> whoever planned that one. But that is where the fix is. Mm -hmm. But... As a rule, they're entitled to go on strike, but they also have to consider, because, see, I've been involved in a situation or two where workers have legitimately gone on strike in mm. situations where I was in a position of authority to speak about it. And then I raised the issue of the strike, the disruption mm -hmm. that normally will follow these strikes, and the justification, if any, for them to earn their salaries or incomes or whatever for the period that everything has been disrupted. Mm. Because if you take the law, I mean, the fact that you, are, you can go on strike does not mean the strike is legitimate. Mm. I want to put it that way. Yeah. Because there are structures that have been put in place by the law that entitles to go on a strike. Mm -hmm. But you know, what really happens is that a lot of these times, whenever the strike has ended, then it's like everything must go. Mm. But I tell you, time is coming in this country where the Labor Commission can go to court. And even after the strike, for a court to make a determination... That the strike was where, illegal. Yes, whether the strike is illegal. And if it's not illegal, then the consequences must follow, including losing your 
salaries or entitlements were for the period mm. of the strike. Mm. You know, that is how these issues must go on in this mm. country because now everybody is aware. Everybody is aware of his rights and so forth. But right goes with consequences. Yeah. Right goes with implications yeah. and so forth and so on. So maybe this is a test case mm. where they have, I wouldn't use the word connived, I wouldn't use the word colluded. But the Labour Commission was on notice. I mean, they, they notified Labour Commission. I'm sure they did all of I, that. I'm not making a pronouncement. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something about notice. Mm -hmm. I was a student leader in those days. We did the university regulations about applying and so forth. And so what we do is, it's at the time that we go on the strike, at the time that we go on demonstration, that's the time that we we'll deliver our letter asking for permission, which was an exercise that we deliberately engage in, of course, to frustrate any action. And that kind of notice cannot be a proper notice, cannot be a legitimate notice. But I'm not speaking to the facts of these cases. I do not know. Because if all that you do is to give notice that you're embarking on a strike in circumstances or a situation where you know that the kind of notice requires a kind of response before you can actually start it, then obviously when you confront the Labor Commission, what we call a fate accompli. In other words, a situation where they can't do anything about mm. because of the very circumstances. And obviously, in this particular case, to the court themselves have also closed down mm. and therefore depriving the court itself an opportunity to examine the legitimacy or otherwise of the situation. Personally, much as I sympathize with them, I, I'm hoping and believing that the matter will not end there. Because there, there are people who think that the court people, the, the judicial service should be part of the essential services so that they cannot go on strike at will or they cannot go on strike this way. So they add them to other essential services. Would, would that be a solution? It may not necessarily be a solution because at the end of the day, the statement that this gentleman made was very simple. Mm. Is that even if they had the money tomorrow, they may not even be the meeting mm. at all on Monday. Mm. That's all they are requiring. So the real purpose of making anybody I mean, adding anybody to essential services to ensure that they've got a package. So it's a package mm. that's going to, I mean, determine what the situation is going to be like. And, you know, I've looked at the Labor Act. I've been involved in some litigation on these subjects. And you will appreciate that even though the, what do you, the pension, you see, we've got the, the, the Pension Act, you see, even though the Pension Act originally sought to remove even these essential services from Cap 30, which is a form of pension that existed, there have been a backtracking in respect to the, uh, what do you call it, the essential services, mm. meaning that they're entitled to a package which is better than what the ordinary workers are enjoying. Mm. So if the idea of uh, adding them to essential services is to ensure that those are the packages that they are going to enjoy, going to be entitled to, I'm talking particularly about Cap 30, I believe I'm right, yes, yes. it's particularly about the Cap 30, then it's a different form of pension. Will it be amenable to being added to the essential services, or that hasn't come up in your discussions? It, is, it doesn't come up in the discussion, yes, but if you look at the nature of the service we render and the regulations that governs our work, we feel that a package could be put in place to add us to the essential service, and then we enjoy that package. Like what a uh, counsel said, he happens to be our lawyer mm. and did a very good job for us. In a matter versus AGN. Which is a, very good in 2016. Mm. And if you check that case very well, you realize he made a very good case for us to be entitled to the Cap 30. Mm. And if we have packages like that, 
it should not be wrong for us to be added to the essential service. Mm. And that is if government is willing to get us the other benefits that comes with being an essential service provider. I if see. you pay me as a, a salary that is so equal to the normal uh, non-essential service workers and you want to add me to essential services because you don't want me to go on strike. That, not be fair. that will not be a fair thing to be done. Very well. It should come with a package. Uh, uh, Franklin, I know you've been listening in. Um, the strike, you may be a user of the court. The, the, the strike is affecting delivery of justice. Uh, you, you've heard Abdullah speak articulating their concerns. Uh, how, how do you hope this is resolved? They want their money or they want some serious assurance uh, from government before they can call up the strike. Given that their strike touches on very critical part of our society, justice delivery, what should be the approach? Government obviously has difficulties. What should be the approach? Well, I think before they deliver the help in justice delivery, they must be well fed. Um, I, I, look, I mean, if, if, they are, if, they are, if they are due is due, uh, sorry, is reviewed after every two years, I think that's what he said. Um, that actually is not fair at all for, for them. I mean, on them, not at all. I, I, I really do not have much to say, except to say that they should attend to their needs immediately. Hmm. I, I see. So um, they, they want a lot of the, how do we call it? They're they calling for 55%. In this, of course, we're dealing with IMF after this discussion. This harsh economic situation, 55%. Never mind, it is for a period of two years. Uh, my difficulty is that they've not even received any acknowledgement from government in respect of what they have mm -hmm. brought. And so that also means that going through that process will take a long time before their matter is resolved. And, and the difficulty that leaves users of the court with, that is my problem. Because a lot of people's decisions or actions are awaiting their strike. People must go to court to get other things done. It, it's, it's a very dicey situation, uh, if, if you ask me. No, without a doubt. I mean, I, and I sympathize with everybody who is using their courts. Anyway, look, um, I'm sure the 55% was, 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 was taken into, I mean, they took into consideration the inflationary trends. Mm. Well, guys, uh, inflation is already coming down. Maybe government could meet them halfway. And then mm. I'm sure they are willing, they are human beings as well, they'll be willing to, to concede. I think that's what I read from the gentleman's uh, mm. Uh, language, right? I mean, if, if something is offered, at least, that would be a starting point. But if there's been no acknowledgement at all, that's not fair on them, really. Mm. You know, um, I, I, see. I, I see. I see. Uh, yes. that being charged at the court mm. are any lower these days, anyway. Very well. Uh, um, Aban, I, I, I want to be calling you Justice Aban, but uh, Alex Aban, I, <laughs> I, I want to conclude with you on this. Uh, you're a user of the court. I mean, you, have, you practice in the court. I mean, so you, you, you talk for yourself, but you have to consider their difficulty as well. I don't know where you draw, you draw the balance. You have to go to the court to, 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 to earn your wages. He, they also work in the court, but if they are not well-fed, like what Franklin just said, they cannot continue working for you to also be getting your due. Government hasn't responded to them. Obviously, government is in some difficulty. Where, where really do we draw this line? Well, let me start by saying that I sympathize with, mm. uh, because having followed the trajectory, mm. Uh, of various engagements up to this point. Mm. I sympathize with mm. uh, the judicial service staff. You know, uh, probably if the uh, cola mm. had not been withdrawn, yes. and it was there in the interim as they continued with negotiations, probably we wouldn't have had the situation. Mm. Indeed, 
uh, if you look at the uh, economic figures, uh, the inflation yes. and all those kind of things, uh, obviously, if government itself mm. recognized that things were hard, and so this was introduced to cushion them for some time, it stands to reason that any time that you are withdrawing it, then you must put them at where they are supposed to be. Mm. And it's, it is in that respect that I sympathize with them. But if you look at the timelines, how government works, sometimes slowly, it appears to me that the time that this uh, proposal really got to the executive for them to work on it is so short for them to have embarked on the strike. Mm. And that's why I'm saying that probably the best would have been to maintain the cola in their case mm -hmm. as negotiations uh, continued. Uh, we can only uh, ask them respectfully that uh, they should consider all other court users because you have to know that uh, it has collateral effects. Mm -hmm. We are talking about a third of the government machinery not working. Mm -hmm. And because the people who, uh, if I say, patronize their services are also many, mm -hmm. it's affecting everybody. And issues of human rights lies with them. Mm -hmm. Because as we speak, somebody may have been uh, reminded mm -hmm. he's supposed to uh, go bail. for bail mm. because they are not certain mm. the person will have to uh, be taken back mm. to uh, custody. custody. Now, uh, somebody has an appeal mm -hmm. to file within a certain number of days. Uh, so, so in this case, what, what, what would, the, would, would the time be arrested? Would, would, what happens? Time will still run? I've seen a judgment, mm. a judgment in which the court had taken judicial notice. Which is all this. Okay. Yes. yes. And say that, okay, you were supposed to file mm. uh, this, your appeal, or this process on a certain... Uh, there was strike. So there was strike. You couldn't... So freeze the time for you. As I speak with you, mm. I had some 14 days yes. to file something in Kofodia court. Mm. I had done everything that I had to do. And I felt uh, I would file on the 14th day. day. Mm -hmm. Then the strike okay. uh, was uh, announced the, the 13th day. Oh. What else could I do? Mm. So I'm sure all these things will affect mm. a lot of things. So they should also know that, yes, as they push for their own sustenance and survival, they're also depriving a lot of us, mm. our daily income. Very well. So let us draw the balance and get them to go back to work. You have the final word on this. What, what can you tell us? Yes, please. So there's an issue about the Labour Commission, which I want to make clear. Mm -hmm. In our case, we decided to give them notice. At the same time, route to the presidency through the council, asking that if by a certain date we don't get what we are looking for, we'll be compelled to advise ourselves. Mm. Our notice to the Labour Commission was clear that if we did not get the approval by 12th of May, we were going to embark on a series of industrial actions. Mm. And we're being moderate because of the essential nature of our services. Mm. We first said that we're going to begin by wearing of red armbands to work from 15th to 19th. Mm. We'll come and work all right, but with the red armbands to send a signal. Which we did. No, we did you not. Did, okay. After the 15th, then the following week, if you don't get it, 
then we will now begin with a strike. The red ambulance would have drew an attention. The Labour Commission issued summons to us to come and Finance Ministry and Labour Ministry and copied the Office of the Chief Staff to come and asked that the strike, we should call off all industrial actions. We appeared before them and when we appeared, we look at the timing, the timelines that we were given, trying to strike a fine balance between the two and ask that they should give us just our last thing was they should give us one week mm. and order government to engage us. They did order government to engage us and ask that the Labour Ministry should convene the meeting with us to consider the issues that we are looking of. At the time that we were not embarking on any form of industrial action, the Labour Commission said no and adjourned the meeting to uh, 24th. 24th. That is giving us 14 days and said that government has a lot of business, so 14 days would be reasonable for the government to have engaged us and concluded the matters. So in fact, when we declared the strike on 24th, it coincided with the exit of the Chief, of Chief, Chief Justice, Justice and others, and people were thinking that, no, it was the commission that gave that date, that we should come back on that day. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, between the, within the 14 days, government didn't take any step to engage us. Mm -hmm. We do not have any not even an informal communication from government side within that period. Mm. So that brought about the issue that we have. Also, the Labour Commission gave its directive and wrote a letter. You see, the directive was dated uh, 9th. We had the meeting on 10th. So, so, so there was an issue with the date, which, yes. which you guys raised. Somewhere. So they, they withdrew that directive and said they would replace it. And they didn't, there's no directive. There's no directive before us. Mm. So on 24th, there wasn't anything in mind us technically. So we have no option but to declare that strike. Then also, I want to add this issue. It's very, very important because I've gone through city news online okay. and the city of online to get those issues. We say we are essential service providers. We've embarked on, for the past eight years, USAC has threatened or embarked on five strikes. Mm. 2015, we went on strike mm -hmm. because of salaries review. Mm -hmm. In 2016, mm -hmm. we threatened strike. And I could see city of say said, well, USAC threatens another strike again okay. over salaries review that time we haven't we had to consolidate our salaries it came there then we had another one in uh, october 2017 it means we're due for another review and gusak had to threaten strike november 2019 gusak threatens strike we, we actually declared a strike in 2019 and certain issues happened in 2021 october 2021 we had to declare another strike so the point is that every time 2023 we are also Every year, every, almost every two years, it starts to happen. We've never seen Parliament say they want to declare strike or the chief of office of the president say that staff there are declaring strike. Among these the three... <laughs> Maybe the next year. <laughs> <laughs> no. So the point I want to make here is that it is time for government to prioritize the service rendered by the third arm of government Very well. and say that this is going to be the last of it. Very well. If Very we well. have that commitment, hopefully they will have an individual justice is going to come. Very well. So that's Abdullah um, Yakubu, General Secretary of JUSAG. Um, so that's how we conclude this segment of the program. Um, two messages. Um, so there, there's some public service and there's a ghastly accident on the Tamamoto way around Kanewu. The victims need urgent attention. And so we are pleading that the authorities move there quickly. This one from Max from Adenta says, uh, I think the word contempt here is being misinterpretative. Uh, for instance, if I say we Ghanaians are fools because of a behavior I noticed from us, does it mean that the president should call me to order, that's from Maxwell. Um, this one says, uh, Salon, kudos for the extensive coverage on network, CTF and CCTV have been giving and continue to give to the plight of the staff of the GR service. May God richly bless your network. Salon, can you imagine the unfairness and injustice being meted out to the staff 
of the judicial service and you, you give a long um, so this is for a more worried staff from bono all right so this is how we conclude this segment the next segment will be on the imf thanks so much for doing the listening my guests have been uh, mahama yariga alexander aban uh, koku pinto abdullah yakubu um, alexander aban and then franklin kujo will, will continue to be on the next panel thank you so much for doing the listening we'll be back and deal with the matters of the imf this is the big issue don't go away Time to ignite your passion. So we don't give up. Astonishing. We find that top corner. Thrilling. That's great effort. It's a fabulous goal. What an incredible goal. Electrifying. Invigorating. How good is it? Stay in the game. Catch all the upcoming entertainment of this season on Supersport only on DSTV. This Sunday on the Upside Down Show, we'll have a conversation with Princess Coco Boating, Ghana's youngest qualified chartered accountant at age 18. She will speak about her experience on campus, life and family. I want to be someone who like changes the dynamic of things. I don't think change comes in boom, big like that. It starts from the little stuff. So in my workplace, I would want to contribute significantly, maybe from there. Then it expands and goes worldwide. We'll also have special appearances from Adelaide this year. Sweet Jesus, you've got me dancing to your tune. As the deer pant for water, so my soul longs for you. Forever and ever, yes, this heart beats for you. And a robotics engineer, Henry Senegbe. Okay, so this is a visually impaired stick, uh -huh. which is, is to help the visually impaired aid in navigation, mm. whereby if you detect obstacle, it gives a vid feedback vibration okay. mm. that there's an obstacle in front of the, uh, the visually the, the impaired uh -huh. path. Yes. Yeah. And then it tells you to move to the opposite direction. On the Upside Down show at 7 p.m. only on City TV. Upside Down is proudly sponsored by Sky Mineral Water. If you're a whiz kid that collects straight A's in your sleep, a brainy brains that aces quizzes without even trying, or a clever clogs that knows just about everything, then there's one or more battle you have to win. The Literacy Challenge. The nationwide search for the best junior high student is on. Think it could be you going home with 10,000 Ghana cities and a glitzy trophy? Then, in not less than 600 words, write a story that ends with the following statement. The happiest people do not have the best of everything. They make the best of everything they have. Stories should be written in your own handwriting with the deadline of Saturday, the 15th of July, 2023 in mind. Submissions must include an endorsement by a parent or guardian and the full contact details. And once you're done, shoot off your entries to the front desk of City TV or City FM. Or you can send entries to PO Box GP 14123 Accra Central. For more inquiries, call 0558-973-973. The Literacy Challenge 2023 is powered by City TV, supported by City FM, and is sponsored by Ghana National Gas Company.
It's game day. Your team needs you. Grab your lucky shirt. Victory isn't just down to skill. With every memento, cheer and shout, your team will feel your presence. You'll be here when the drama unfolds and the excitement reaches keep a pitch in the football finals. We're here so you can be there. Go TV. Love it. Welcome back to the big issue. Um, we just dealt with the matter of the judicial service strike and the vetting of uh, Justice Gertrude Tokonu and matters that came up and um, I guess dealt with the matter. And, and you also had your say in a few of your text messages you sent. Now, I want to look at the IMF. Um, they've given us some 600 million CDs, sorry, 600 million dollars as balance of payment support. Uh, that hit our account sometime last week, Friday, we understand. And we asked for three billion, and there are some targets we have to be meeting, and the tranches will be released after assessment. And assessments have been spaced. There's something that will happen in June, but a real assessment will happen in November. If we have met our targets, they will release another tranche, and it continues that way till the, the end of the program. Uh, and mind you, there's election somewhere in the middle. It's a three-year program. By election is next year, and historically, uh, we've not done so well in terms of spending during election years, apart from 2004, when Osafu was uh, finance minister. Apart from that, over the years, it's been difficult to stay within budget in election years. So that is coming whilst the IMF program was to be running. What would that mean? What, what, what will you do? The banking sector, as well, will be suffering some difficulties. The reports, um, financial reports we've seen, is that a lot of them will have difficulties because of the DDEP. Mind you, a lot of them were exposed to government bonds, and that has been a difficulty for them. You know, a lot of them are running the negatives, etc. Prior to all, in the period of the DDEP, the Bank of Ghana as a regulator uh, gave some guidelines which it uh, thought or it still thinks will, will help assuage the effect of the DDEP on the sector. The, bank, the IMF is saying a few things about that and the buffers and all of that they must build over that period. The IMF also did say that the banking sector was quite robust before the DDEP uh, in 2022, that's last year. The DDEP is a domestic debt exchange program where the bonds and et cetera were exchanged for other ones at varying coupon rates and, and tenure, et cetera. So that is the discussion for the next uh, uh, segment. And my guest to help us uh, dissect the deal with the IMF will be Franklin Kujo, President of Imani Africa, uh, Professor John Gachi, Dean of the School of Business, University of Cape Coast, uh, Dr. Rich Monitor, Haney Banking and Finance Consultant, and then uh, 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 Alexander Aban, uh, who has lectured in banking law, and he's, he's, he was on the first panel, he's also in the studio with us. Uh, gentlemen, you are welcome to the program. Uh, let me start off with you, you. Um, uh, Professor John Gachi, who is Dean of uh, the business school, uh, University of Cape Coast. Yes, we, we've looked at the, the documents from the IMF where the conditionalities and all of that have been um, stated. Just to start it off, what generally will be your impression on the conditionalities and what the IMF expects of us 
in this period. Thank you. I think conditionality, so to say, uh, in the scheme of things of IMF uh, could mean that things that we should have been doing to keep our finances correct, to keep our management of the economy right, that we have failed to do, uh, either because it is difficult for us to do or because of some political uh, difficulties we were not able to do. So we were forced to do them because they are seem to be the right thing to be done uh, to ensure that the economy is managed well. And so if you look at the conditionalities, uh, so to say, uh, you will see that there are things that we should have been doing that we have not done and that they are now imposing it on us. Issues relating to debt sustainability, there are things we are supposed to do uh, per our public financial management rules. We are not be able to do that. Uh, issue relating to uh, providing clarity on emergency use uh, of uh, uh, funding from the central bank, uh, suspension of uh, uh, fiscal responsibility rules, there are things that we should have known that if we are suspending fiscal responsibility rule, it does not mean that we have suspended responsibility. Mm. The only, it only means that uh, we are allowed to inch up the limit of 5% uh, to maybe 6%, 9%, etc. But even with that space, we allow for responsibility, accountability, etc. So for me, uh, I see all uh, these issues of conditionality as I see in the document that there are things that we are supposed to do, we have failed to do, and we are being forced to do uh, them. Uh, managing cocoa sector uh, finances effectively, there are things we are supposed to do, we fail to do. Managing SOEs, Nobody forced us to allow political interference for which we load the, the SOEs uh, sector with so many employees uh, and then uh, do not allow for efficiency to take place. So that's what I can say about the, uh, the conditionalities. What, what will you say will, will be the implications of, of, of some of these conditionalities? For example, uh, front-loading a, a lot of the fiscal measures uh, uh, not for, so, for example, the, the, the new taxes that were passed, uh, the, the fact of the uh, utilities review um, over, I mean, quarterly review, that obviously uh, are going to uh, lead to some implications on the pocket of the ordinary citizen. Meanwhile, incomes haven't grown that much, and we are dealing with an inflation which, which is almost unprecedented for the period. Uh, what will be the implication of this on the public and even other government activities for the period? Well, the implication is that it's going to impose pressure on on the public. It will put some difficulties on on on, uh, on on the public. But as I said, this is the price the public pays uh, for not seeking uh, or for not putting pressure on its government to do the right thing. Uh, so that is what is going to happen. Front-loading means that we want to fast-track fiscal consolidation, and definitely it put pressure on us. We have outlined 
a number of taxes that have been approved by parliament more will be coming uh, we want to ensure that we have a efficient way of managing our power sector our utilities we want to pay economy prices and this has not been done for some time so definitely uh, applying them in quarterly basis will put continuous pressure uh, on, on 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 all of us so that is a is a reality but the point is that it's something that we renege on on doing uh, continuously and then we are being asked to front load them in our management of the economy the same thing applies to uh, the condition relating to revising the bank of ghana art and ensuring that there is zero lending to to the government uh, we ourselves in the last imf engagement the IMF asks for zero lending, but when uh, our, our, our government uh, presented the bill to parliament, the parliament, uh, after the deliberation, decided to peg it at 5%. Uh, that was the law, but the IMF was not satisfied. So the IMF were, uh, re, uh, requested for the, from the government to put in place a memorandum to indicate that they will not adhere to what our law says, but they will adhere to what the IMF wanted. That was the zero fund funding. And we were told that in 2016, uh, that was the case. There was zero funding of uh, uh, the budget by, by, by the central bank. Uh, uh, and then along the line, we, we went far, far above the 5%. And uh, uh, I, I do believe that we can run this economy without allowing some space for the central bank to support the funding of the budget. But there might be a reasonable limit that all of us will adhere to. But I believe, again, we fail to adhere to uh, what was provided for. And as a result, we have gone way back and the, economies is, uh, the economy has been engulfed with what we call fiscal dominance. And it is that fiscal dominant that we want to deal with. So in order to deal with the fiscal dominant, then you, you need to ensure that you limit, you restrict the, the central bank from lending to, uh, to government. So uh, the, the, these, the, these are the, the reality of uh, the conditionalities imposed on us. And unfortunately, uh, when we are in economic crisis and the rest, uh, the the usual thing to be done is front load uh, all the excuses and difficulties on the public and for the public and uh, businesses to take uh, the chunk of the load and perhaps government uh, may not uh, be taking any of the load, transferring everything to uh, those people who were not the cause of uh, what we are going through. I see. Uh, okay. Dr. Hene, uh, um if you're on the line, I mean, you deal with the banking sector, the financial sector and all of that. Uh, is there any way, because the banking sector really has, has, has suffered some issues uh, in the past, I mean, the cleanup and all of that. So just when it was uh, getting onto its feet, we were hit by the DDEP. We've seen the financial reports from these banks and a lot of them do not actually look good. Um, is there a way that the uh, Bank of Ghana can help lessen the, the, the burden that these financial institutions are carrying? Is there really a way around this? Thank you very much. Um, 
there is a way around it, but it's a tough way to go. Because what you have seen, what has been taken in 2022, is not all. It's not all. The losses are not all. I can assure you that the total loss, if you use the 16%, what the IMF and the Bank of Ghana and the banks agree, the total MPV losses is close to 37 billion. As I speak to you, 19.4 billion was taken up in 2022. We're still left with about close to 17.1 billion losses that has to be taken care of. That is why the IMF is saying that front load all the losses and then develop your capital plan. Front load all the losses means that capture all the losses that are pending. Because some of the banks, I can assure you for the figures I have, about five banks might need to capture all their losses in 2022. But the others were given leeway to do that quarterly. If you look at the IMF report, quarterly capturing, where every, every one year you capture a quarter. Unfortunately, now you have to front load the losses and then develop a capital plan. And that capital plan would mean that the shareholders would have to come and support the bank to bring it to its solvency. Other than that, it's not going to survive international business and even local business. And the interesting thing about the way out, the way out, if you look at the way the Ghana um, Financial Stability Fund, if it's done perfectly, perfectly, maybe, maybe we'll mitigate some of the losses. But if you tell the shareholders after 20, after the first capitalization 2019 or thereabout to come and bring in so much money for the fault which is not the banks if the fault which is not the shareholder who has created it although the board failure governance failure and risk poor risk management led us led the bank into where they are but even that if you call on the shareholder to recapitalize these losses whereas the government himself the, the state has actually brought about these difficulties. I think that we should look at the supporting the financial stability fund to help all the indigenous banks. Because if you have read it, all the foreign banks, I can assure you, South African banks, even the English bank, the French banks, they all, if you look at what Bloomberg said, they all started, even Nigeria, most of them are getting ready to capitalize their banks. So what I would say, the way out for us is that we should begin to support the indigenous bank. And like Professor Gachi said, we need to put up a very good corporate governance. You know, you don't load people to these state banks where people do not even understand what the risk means. We find ourselves here, number one, is a complete risk failure on the part of the board. So you can hold the board responsible and then hold the risk management board responsible. But the total ownership of the problem is to me, is the state which borrowed and borrowed and borrowed and borrowed and borrowed. And one time in a lecture at Kimpiski, I said that where we are borrowing out and not putting into productive use, a time will come we pay through our nose. 
And that is why Professor Gachi is saying that. We, st we stood aloof for people to take the whole country for a, a ride. That is the price that citizenry have to pay, which is not fair at all. Which especially, especially the owners of the banks, especially the indigenous bank, who the shareholders have tried all these while to bring the bank, then for them to go in the way they went, to actually say that. So that is my plea with the authority, is to build a very good, like this, the Jamaican Financial Stability Day. You need to build a strong financial sector stability fund that will go to support the indigenous bank. Otherwise, otherwise, if the impending losses are captured by 2022, it will be very difficult for the indigenous bank and the Ghanaian banks. So that is, that is what I will say for a moment. So supporting the indigenous banks, uh, what does that mean and how should that be done? Are you uh, recommending the GATT approach, for example? How, how should that support to the indigenous banks you're calling for be made? You know, in the, you know what we have done, what we've done, this debt exchange, is a replica of what Jamaicans did. So even the financial stability fund is based on the Jamaican model. And what they did is that the central bank created a stability council that would ensure the need of every institution. I don't want us to create another arm. You know, the more you create these guards and this, this one should be the focus of the central bank so that the board of the central bank or the board of the financial stability council would ensure that every bank's need has properly been dealt with because if we are borrowing from international market to support the banks we must all take the responsibility that we shouldn't shift the goalposts we should be tough with it and you see these funds are not free the stability fund is not going to be free. If you read the literature, there is a little component of interest so that the physical costs do not come to hit the country. So we'll give you, and we also have to have part of the board. Bank of Ghana may have to appoint certain people on the boards of those banks that will be able to assess this fund. So that the governance, I want to state the governance, the governance of the banks will be up and doing. So, so that we don't find ourselves. But going to the guts and all those things, I don't want us to add, the more you add layers, the more you create difficulties, the more you create challenges, and the more you even add cost. But in the Jamaica model, it is the central bank of Jamaica, the stability council that set it up so that they can look at every case individually and locate money as it is. But the question is that, is the fund even available? <laughs> the question is the funding, because you hear that the World Bank has made a commitment of 250 million. Yesterday I read from, I think a mini, one of the Ministers of Finance, State of Finance or what is, is saying, he's talking to the African Development Bank to help us. You see, my brother, it goes to something that has been with us, like Professor Yachikane has said. Anytime we have a problem, Instead of we looking the problem from down, we tend to look at the problem from up. If we have done serious scenario, scenario testing, scenario testing before the DDE, 
all these things would have been addressed. Because I wrote a paper and I said that banks would be expected to present a credible capital plan to the central bank during the DDE so that the Bank of Ghana would have known the impact of every bank. But that has already happened. I believe what the IMF has said, like <laughs> Professor Gachi said, anytime when somebody speaks from outside, we tend to run to embrace it. <laughs> but when we speak from internally, mm. our voice are not heard. Mm. So I hope and pray that all these things that we are saying will be taken in good faith, in good faith, in good faith. Whether it's Dr. Professor Gachi, whether it's Franklin, whether it's myself or other people, we speak because we are Ghanaians. People should not be seen to see us as other people. Mm. We are Ghanaians. The, the Minister of State. Where am I going? 69, where am I going? <laughs> <laughs> no, you are contributing. You are contributing to Ghana, to, to Ghana's development, which is fine. The, 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 the Minister of State. When they were doing the leap, <laughs> they didn't look, didn't, those pensions who are monies are there are not being looked at. How can pensioners? We are also vulnerable people. But in Ghana, <laughs> when you go to Europe, when you go to Germany, when you go to Britain, when they talk about vulnerability, the pensioners are always But in this jurisdiction, pensioners are not part of it. No, but, but pensioners who have lived good lives and have investments and, and are reaping their investments, etc. I mean, yes, in terms of age and strength, you are vulnerable. But in terms of financial strength, I mean, you, you, you may not be vulnerable, like you yourself. You know, here you are with a lot of yeah. experience and wealth <laughs> know, of knowledge and sharing with us. The me, the mess. And translates <laughs> my to brother, the pocket as well. My brother, the mess was not created by them. <laughs> the mess were not created by the pensioners. It was created by people who have the, the terrible appetite to borrow everything that comes in their way. So it's not the pensioners. Yes. But I don't know who will go and lobby and stand and pick it. Mm. Just to provide some information on the Financial Stability Fund, the, the Minister of State responsible for finance, Dr. Amin Adams, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, said that the, the uh, Stability Fund uh, was finally set to come to play uh, with some 750 million uh, US dollars disbursement from the Finance Ministry. And that it, it, this, this captures about, so this would be like 9 billion out of the 15 billion aspirational uh, uh, figure. Uh, so it, it means some work is, is almost, uh, um, or some work is being done, and the fund will, will start its disbursement. I mean, that is just some information. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Can I provide uh, okay, some so, so, yes, so, 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 so go ahead. Just go ahead. Well, so I go to Franklin when you are done. Yes, I think uh, the first thing is to appreciate that per our laws, it is the Bank of Ghana directly which has to support uh, banks facing challenges through what we call the liquidity support. Mm. And that fund, that uh, money, when the banks assess it, it is at interest. The last time uh, that that money was made available to the banks, it was at the policy rate. And so it's not even free. Mm. But regulatory activities demand that the Bank of Ghana should do that directly. Mm. Now, uh, the difficulty with this GATT is that the GATT is coming in uh, as if the, the, the money will have to be secured through the uh, through Bank of Ghana, through 
that and that is strange development number two the arrangement of the investment through GATT is such that uh, you will have some common shares then you have preference shares and what it means is that for GATT, even if the company is making losses they are able to secure some benefit through preference shares because we treat preference share as though it's a hybrid instrument the the returns on preference share is assumed to be a debt instrument so then again uh, they are going to be seen appointing people on the board and i think that that particular uh, arrangement is uh, inimical to the progress of the banks especially when you are saying that this development in the banks is actually caused by ddep which was a policy framework by the government so why will you why will your policy framework have a toll on the bank then you bring a vehicle that is not friendly to the banking system mm. that is questionable and the the foreign banks i'm not sure any of them will assess that stability fund because assessing the stability fund is invitation to get to enter into your bank mm. and if a bank is not interested in that uh, the bank will not assess uh, 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 that stability fund and the good news is that most of the foreign banks have their their parent banks who support them uh, to to capitalize so they will not go there so again we are targeting our domestic banks and which we have to look at critically through the financial sector cleanup or the banking sector cleanup it was the domestic banks which had uh, the guard entering into their fold and we all know what is happening with uh, with, with uh, the, the experiences with guard and again if you open the window for guard to come in uh, i see a terrible corporate governance experience uh, in the banks then this again, finally, this again provides some continuous uh, unfairness towards uh, the shareholders. You know, under the financial sector cleanup, there was directive against payment of dividend. So many of the banks have hold on payment of dividend. Now, under this new arrangement, after the DDEP, the banks are again were told to halt payment of dividend. Now, this shareholder who should benefit from dividend, he didn't benefit from dividend from uh, the banking sector cleanup. Then he will not benefit from dividend under uh, the effect of the DDEP, but he is called upon under financial sector cleanup to to provide extra capital. Then under DDEP, he is also called again to provide extra capital. Hmm. What are we doing to, especially our domestic bank? I believe this is highly unfair to them. Hmm. I see. Quite, quite interesting there. Uh, Franklin, what, what, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, why shouldn't, the, or why should we stop the, the, the Bank of Ghana from providing any support at all to, to the finance ministry, for example. Why should we agree to, to zero lending uh, from the, the Bank of Ghana? Elsewhere, governments print money to deal with problems. 
Is, is it a good thing we have signed on to? Of course, I, I know the issues about responsibility and recklessly taking money from the Bank of Ghana and all of that. But to say zero, zero percent, that is quite onerous, is it not? Well, good morning to my good friends once again. Good to see you, Prof and uh, Doc. Well, listen, um, I don't think anybody held a gun to our heads, uh, really, when we we decided that we were going to set a limit to which we, the central bank was going to finance the, the, the activities of the, of the central government, right? Um, I think we've reached a stage where we, we ourselves have become so indisciplined financially, fiscally, and uh, somehow we've allowed the central bank to be used as some sort of a rubber stamping agency, right? Um, otherwise, why are we now accepting, because the IMF has said there should be more supervisory uh, should I say, sunshine on the central bank activity. And then we're actually willing to uh, change our laws to, to ensure that. So in this case, the zero financing will be seen anyway. I mean, it is a true test of, our, of the central bank's independence because now what it means is that they would, if, if, they, if they even give a dollar to the government, they would have breached their own uh, rules that they set. Well, perhaps not their own because now it's been imposed, right? I think long we've we've long held the view that when monetary policy, sorry, when the fisc, uh, when when government behavior is actually uh, encouraged by the central bank, then very soon we would have we would have a situation that uh, essentially uh, we are currently facing right now. Maybe there's a history to it, right? Maybe the central bank must have been sleepy during the challenges we have in the, with, the, with the commercial banks not too long ago. But I don't think we would have served ourselves well by imposing this rather strict limiter of the central bank's role when it comes to financing government. I mean, there's nothing essentially wrong if the central bank decided that there's a limit they can't cross, maybe 3 4 5% financing government deficit. But when it becomes a habit, where continuously they are just dishing out money to the central bank, and encouraging the sorry, dishing money to the central government, and the central bank, central government continues to, as it were, splurge without any uh, corresponding productivity. Then clearly, um, you'd have the situation we currently have. So for me, um, yes, I understand the question as to why um, the central bank should should somehow be seen to be supporting government initiatives. Maybe yes, those initiatives must be productive, and there must be some return some value for money considerations whenever the central bank is lending to the, uh, to the, to the central government. But why you don't see that, and I think we've now agreed that we can never be disciplined enough, or the central bank cannot discipline itself to the, to, enough to ensure that it does not finance government's uh, split, then certainly what it is is what, is, what, it, what it has become, right? So I do not really want to share the ATS for the central bank or the, the imposition we've had ourselves. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of experiences. I recall, I think, 2016 or 2015, when I visited the Central Bank of, the, of England, I met with the Director of Development of the English Bank, Central Bank. And I remember his part in West Ring. He said, look, whatever you do, never allow your central government to dictate the pace for the central bank. Because when that happens, you'd have lost all sense of you know, um, independence and then You'd have set your government on the path, or you'd have set your people on the path of, you know, um, some sort of um, forgotten the word you use, but essentially suggesting that would have been in the wilderness. 
And so wilderness, we have, we have been right now, as, as you see what is currently happening to us. So I don't think this is a colonial imposition. This is we saying that we have become so indisciplined that we now accept that we will no longer give even a dollar to the central government. I don't think that is sensible, but under the circumstances, why not? Look, haven't we now talk about, we are not currently looking at reviewing some of the government flagship projects, but this has been on the table all this, all, all this while. It should have been part and parcel of the design process when these projects were, were envisioned, right? You shouldn't think that I have to come and tell us that, well, look, you need to target your certain policies properly. It should have been part and parcel of the whole arrangement from day one. So if that would, if this is what would take the, 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 the central bank to be fiscally responsible, I so be it. Hmm, I see. Honorable um, um, Albon, is, is still with me in the studio here. The election year is, is next year. Uh, and the, these strictures or these targets and limitations on our spending, etc., uh, we've agreed to be imposed upon us by the IMF will, will surely uh, have implications for, for elections. And historically, we've not done so well in terms of deficit, etc., in election years, apart from 20, 2004, as I did state earlier. Uh, what does this mean to us? What does it mean to the political structure? Uh, are we going to have a lean election or are we going to breach the terms of the, the, the targets or the terms of the IMF? You know, what, what really would that be and what would it mean for us in the program? Yeah, thank you very much. You know, during elections, election years. Everything you, is on break. It's not that everything is on break. Okay. You, you, you realize that the demand for one development here or the other as a condition for votes mm -hmm. becomes higher. Mm. And any political party in government with the aim of retaining itself in government some way, somehow becomes very vulnerable and would want to satisfy these demands in order to court the support and votes of those people. So you are on a campaign trail and they say, oh, if you don't construct this road for us, we'll please for don't you. come here. We won't vote for you. <laughs> Even though there's no money, we must find money and do it. And a government that is desirous of, or a political party in government that is desirous of retaining power. retaining power, would want to find money one way or the other to do that. Or probably get um, a contractor who is ready to do it, and that debt is deferred, but definitely we have to pay, mm. right? These pressures is what leads to um, deficits. deficits, huge deficits during uh, election years. But I think that um, this is the 17th time you have gone to IMF, and it appears to me that every time that we visit IMF, the collateral effect is that we visit further hardship on mm. our people. The time has come where we have to be financially and fiscally disciplined in the way we spend, mm. right? I think strongly that in some of the SOEs, they could have done much, much, much better than they are doing. But what is the problem we, we see? We have sometimes square pegs in round holes, right? Mm. Not because those people are competent enough, but because those people are loyal to party. Mm. We can't run away from that. You know, when we start uh, I mean, dealing with these realities, that is when we can let these uh, 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 SOEs 
do well, right? Mm. If it is not doing well today, divest it or give it to a private uh, person. Immediately, it, it has to turn around. Why? Mm. So government interference in those places, we must check it. Certain appointments that are not necessary, necessary. we must check it, right? Beyond that, the whole bureaucracy itself, we must also check it, mm. okay? Because there are a lot of leakages and loopholes in various ministries, departments, agencies, and all that. How about people who but, think that the, the IMF deal, for example, and the, the arrangements you've had with them, uh, will make will lessen the burden on government in terms of some of the uh, impositions on the people? So, for example, the IMF is talking about tariff adjustments quarterly. And so when the adjustments happen, of course, people will blame government, but people will know that it's because of the IMF. And so government takes a bit of a break from that bashing. So it's, it's good for government, even though it's painful to the people. So we bring the matters from the, the difficulties or the debt at the energy sector level, at the energy sector, a bit, we, we drive it down. So we bring the... the, the you bring it to, uh, closer to cost recovery, full cost recovery. Let's be realistic here. Mm. My uh, uh, grandmother, grandfather, who is in the village, and uh, who has never heard of IMF, mm. all he knows is that uh, 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 things have been increased. Mm. I buy an IA. Mm. But you explained to okay. her that it's IMF. That has forced us to do it. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can assure you that mm. it's only a few mm. who would understand these things. Mm. But in any case, who goes up? Mm. Uh, it's us. Mm. And uh, I admit, mm. I acknowledge that uh, the uh, COVID and uh, the Ukraine war, the Ukraine war mm. is part of it. Mm -hmm. But I am always bold enough to state that part of it is also, also internal. Uh, yes, internal. Very well. Very well. Let, 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 me, let me conclude um, with this that the IMF has said, that the free SHS which is a major issue. Of course, the army is made room, is made room for social protection and leap, etc. I, I come to you on this closing remark, Dr. Twaini. The IMF says that the free SHS has been poorly targeted. What do you think can be done to, 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 to properly target it so that the amount of money government is devoting to, this government can redirect that to somewhere else? You have a few seconds to address this, please. Thank you very much. I think beginning of the free HS, SHS, people said it that, there are too many wealthy people in this country. And I remember the finance minister saying that. He could pay his children's fee at Chachimota, if I'm wrong. That's true. But you see, if you make it a wholesale because you want to win politics, if you want to win power, and you don't do the calculations and very, calculations very well, and begin to do a proper targeting, you end up by saying, the IMF telling you that, poor targeting. Mm. I believe, as uh, Franklin said, do we need the IMF to come and tell us this program? This program, right from its onset, some Ghanaians, well-meaning Ghanaians, came out with figures that what we are doing, we are going to shoot ourselves in the neck. And today we have shot ourselves in the neck mm. because we are not getting quality education. I mean, look at the school years. Somebody goes through in January, three weeks, he come home, stay home in June. Has any of these people, has it been those who went to Premier College in Fansipan, in those days, could you go to school for only three weeks and come back home? But, you see, when we said it, they said, ah, Franklin said, hey, Frankie doesn't like it. But Dr. Gazi said, he said he doesn't like it. Once we don't accept our problems and want to solve it 
scientifically when we data, mm. so we will continue to push back every now and then on this issue. Mm. That's my comment. Very well. Uh, quickly, one second. A quick intervention. You know what? One second, yes. This happened because Ghanaians are like that. When mm. they introduced uh, GetFund, mm. when we were on campus, they said they were looking for needy but brilliant students. Everybody went. Everybody went. I see. So this is everybody will go. All right, so everybody has gone. Uh, well, uh, guys, thanks so much. I, I wish we could have done more. Uh, but that's how we conclude today's edition of the program. Thanks to my Franklin Kujo, President of Money Africa, Professor John Gachi, Dean of the School of Business, University of Cape Coast, my alma mater, Dr. E Richmond, Etienne Hene, Banking and Finance Consultant, Alex Aban, former MP and also lecturer uh, uh, banking law. Uh, my name is Selom Adonu. Catch you same time next week for another exciting edition of The Big Issue.